0: Well, today we are continuing our sermon series, as you can probably tell, 24 hours, which is based upon the gospel according to Mark. Uh, and it follows the last 24 hours of Jesus' life as it leads him to the cross. Uh, what we've been uh, discovering these past few weeks as we've gone through, we've, we've seen Jesus go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays to the Father and his hour, need, his closest friends fall asleep and leave him to his betrayers. He is arrested. He's beaten. He's condemned in front of a, an unfair trial in court. Um, he's denied by his, one of his closest friends. And now he's about to face his death. But before he goes to his death, he still has to make another stop. He needs to go now in front of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who's in charge of, of Judea at the time. And as much as the, the Sanhedrin, the, the religious leaders of the nation of Israel, would like to be able to carry out an execution, they can't. Only Pilate has the power to condemn Jesus to death. And so as we come to this passage today, we find Jesus bound and beaten, completely abandoned and about to lose his life unfairly. Now, in this passage, there's really a, Mark sets up a, a real sharp and stark contrast between these two men. One man has a type of strength that we, in some ways, all aspire to. And the other type of strength is what we often in this world try to avoid at all cost. Mark is going to show us what true strength looks like. And if we understand it, it'll change our perspective. It'll change our lives and turn it upside down. It's a contrast of two different kingdoms and two different value systems. First, let's look at the, the strength and the kingdom that Pilate has. It's driven by power and connection. Now, as we know, when Jesus was alive, Rome was in power over the nation of Israel. And because the Roman Empire was so vast and huge, they would appoint governors and officials to oversee certain parts of of their empire. And and the Romans in charge would allow a a shred of self-government and autonomy to kind of help keep the peace. But it was a facade because the real power belonged to the Romans. They had the military power. They had the economic power. And when push came to shove, what they decided was the law of the land. So as we open Mark 15, Jesus is brought before the most powerful person in all of Judea, Pilate. Very early in the morning, verse (laughs) 1, the chief priest with the elders and teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Now, scholars tell us that these events would have taken place very early morning, probably five o'clock or six o'clock in the morning whenever the sun would come up, because the custom of the Roman officials would be to get all their responsibilities done as early as possible so they would have the rest of the day to kind of pursue their, their, their activities, their, their leisure and their pleasure activities. And right from the beginning, there's a contrast that we see between Pilate and Jesus. At the beginning of the day, Pilate has some business to do, but he's looking forward to enjoying the rest of the day. Jesus, on the other hand, is on his way, and he knows it. He's on his way to be killed. Pilate is connected to the most powerful people in the world at the time. He's a mover. He's a shaker. At one point, he's considered as a possible future emperor. He has connections. He knows how to lever power in the world. In contrast, Jesus has no earthly connections to power. He he has no access to levers of power. He's completely abandoned, even by those closest to him. The contrast continues. Pilate is city in a palace. Um, it's it's a huge palace, encircled with ramparts and towers, the most elaborate and largest palace in the region. One historian from the period described it as the king's palace, which no tongue could describe. Its magnificence and equipment were unsurpassable. Jesus, on the other hand, comes as a prisoner. He's bound. He's about to be beaten and condemned. And the scripture says he had no place to lay his head. Pilate has troops at his disposal, and he hadn't been afraid to use that power either. In Luke 13, we're told that, he had once mixed the blood of Galileans, remember that's the region that Jesus was from, he'd mixed the blood of Galileans with their sacrifices in response to an uprising. Pilate was the law. There was no appeal, there, there was no Supreme Court to second-guess or overturn his decisions. He was the law of the land. What he said was done. You know, the contrast between these two could not be more striking and I want us to see this contrast today because Pilate has everything that often we think in the world that we want. Money, power, connections, status, freedom to do what he wants with his life. Jesus, on the other hand, doesn't have any of that. No power. His friends have abandoned him and he has lost his freedom. Henri Nouwen writes this, about the things we pursue in life, our addictions make us cling what the world proclaims as the keys to self-fulfillment, accumulation of wealth and power, attainment of status and admiration, lavish consumption of food and drink, and sexual gratification without distinguishing between lust and love. Now, I don't know anything about Pilate's sex life, but everything else that Nauen mentions is what Pilate has. It's what we long for at times. Total freedom to do what he wants to do with his life. He had everything that we spend so much of our life pursuing. But notice what happens in this passage. Pilate seems to have all the advantages, but when you look deeper, it's actually Jesus who's in control of the situation. We read in verse 10 that that Pilate perceives that the real reason Jesus is on trial is because the Jewish leaders see him as a threat. They're jealous of his popularity. And Pilate comes to an accurate conclusion that That Jesus is not guilty of any crime. He's not guilty of treason. He's not a threat to overthrow his government and and cost him his throne. But it's here you begin to realize that what Pilate has is really just the appearance of power. He's not a free man. In verses 6 through 15, he tries to free Jesus, but the crowd won't let him. He has access to the best that Jerusalem has to offer. He has all the power, but it turns out he's really not in control after all. He, he caves. He gives in. Against his better judgment, he does what the crowd wants him to do. History shows us that he's eventually removed from office and he travels to haste to, to uh, Rome to defend himself against charges. But before he gets there to make an appeal in front of the emperor, the emperor dies and Pilate disappears from history. In this passage, he seems to have everything, but we see that really there's nothing there at all. You know, you and I can spend so much of our lives chasing the things that Pilate had. But this passage shows us the futility of this kind of, of strength and status and pursuit. These things can become obsessions and idols that promise the world but ultimately do not deliver. And Mark contrasts this strength, this kingdom of Pilate, with the weakness and the kingdom of Jesus Christ, which ultimately turns out to be the strongest, the greatest strength that's ever existed. So let's look now at at Jesus' strength and Jesus' kingdom that comes through weakness. So again, Jesus is bound, he's abandoned. Religious leaders have turned the crowd against him. Barabbas, an insurrectionist, a rebel and a murderer, ends up being more popular than him. And by the end of the passage, Jesus is condemned and he's scourged. Now, scourging means that Jesus would have been tied to a pillar of posts and he would have been flogged countless times. And, And it would have been a whip made of leather with pieces of metal or bone or hooks on it. There's no greater picture of weakness than in this passage. Tied up, bound up, being beaten, being scourged. And yet it's a chosen weakness. Jesus is not a victim. He's not caught off guard by what's happening here. Jesus had a kingdom that far exceeded Pilate's kingdom. He laid it all aside, though, and chose to become weak for our sakes. He chose the way of humility and service and sacrifice and, meekness. and the irony is that Jesus is bound and seemingly powerless, yet it's Jesus who is in charge, not Pilate, and not the crowd. Jesus predicted this would happen. Mark 10 states, We are going up to Jerusalem, Jesus is talking to the disciples, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, the Romans, who will mock him and spit him spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Now, Jesus could have put this to an end at any moment. He had incredible power at his fingertips. But he chose everything that happened to him. Because his fin- his kingdom functions completely differently from any earthly kingdom, certainly from Pilate's kingdom. That's why when Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers, You've had, You have said so. And you think, what kind of answer is that? It's kind of a puzzling answer. It could mean yes, it could mean no, or maybe in this case it means both yes and no. In a sense, Jesus says, I am a king. But he doesn't hold on to his rights. He doesn't hold on to his privileges. He willingly leaves his crown to come to earth unrecognized and to give his life for people who don't deserve his grace or return his love. He comes in weakness. Isaiah the prophet foretold this when he wrote, He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their face, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took upon himself our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Now, if that's that's the kind of king that we have, it begs the question for us, what does that mean for us? who are his followers, who are in his kingdom. Well, it means that we are to lay aside our privileges, our agendas, so that we can serve others, to choose to be weak in the eyes of the world, to be strong in the Lord. Justin Martyr, an early church father who lived from 100 to 165 A.D., wrote this about the church. We who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else Now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. Nobody put it better than, than John about how we are to live our lives. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for another. Jesus chose to be weak and we're called to choose to follow his path to willingly, selflessly, sacrificially pour out our lives for others. Uh, I'm guessing some of you or many of you maybe have read the Hunger Games books or seen one of the three movies. And if you have, you know, the plot revolves around a, a horrible contest between the young representatives of 12 futuristic districts. And the winner of the Hunger Games is the one last one standing as the contestants are forced to kill each other. Uh, the, the, the authorities go from district to district, choosing one boy and one girl. They're all pretty much teenagers. And they come to District 12. And they pull out the name of a girl named Primrose Everdeen. And they begin to lead her away. And her older sister Katniss suddenly intervenes and shouts out, I volunteer, I volunteer as tribute. And she becomes a representative for District 12 in her sister's place. And the character Katniss is, resonates with a lot of people because she's a, is a moving example of, of courage and of sacrificial love. She voluntarily substitutes herself for another human being. But it's also an understandable situation. It's her little sister, right? It's admirable, but it's the kind of thing that we hope that we would do if, if it was our younger sibling or one of our children or, or our spouse. But Jesus' substitution does not work like that. I mean, whose place does Jesus Christ volunteer to take? He takes the place of his disciples who showed cowardice, who abandoned him at his hour of need. He took the place of the scheming religious leaders and and the crowd that turned on him. He took the place of, of a spineless politician like Pilate who would not take responsibility, who passed the buck. He took the place of of Barabbas, a killer, a man who deserved death. He took the place of the thief on the cross and the cursing criminal on the cross. He took the place of you and me. And yet grace comes to us when we come to the cross, when we lay down our lives, when we put our trust in the one who died for us. You know, in the story, Barabbas, the convicted murderer, goes free. And the innocent son of God, the perfect lamb of God, is condemned. Barabbas deserves to die, but Jesus dies in his place. And the love of God does for us on the cross what we cannot do for ourselves. Brings forgiveness, removes guilt and shame, brings peace, brings hope, brings eternal life. And the promise of heaven. Jesus Christ dies in our place while we who are guilty go free. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A final contrast. Pilate asked in verse 12, what is truth? Which is a, one of the top two or three questions that we need to be asking in life, isn't it? What is truth? The truth is standing three feet away from him. The truth is staring him in the face. But he can't see it. He doesn't understand it. He won't embrace it. He won't believe it. And therefore, he doesn't follow it. He was close enough to reach out and touch the truth. Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. But he doesn't. He tries to stay neutral. He tries to stay out of the the issue. He chooses not to answer his own question. His final question to the crowd still rings across the centuries when he asks to the crowd, what shall I do then with Jesus Christ? Which is the ultimate question, isn't it? All of us eventually must give an answer. To not answer is to answer. We can crown him as Lord. We can acknowledge him as the Son of God. We can accept him as Savior or... We can turn our back and and watch him walk to the cross. If he is the Son of God, then we should crown him and make him Lord of our life. But if he's a fraud and a phony, then it would be foolish to follow him and take his way of life. But we each must take responsibility for our own decision, our own answer to this question. Pilate sadly did not. I mean, it's clear from the scripture that he knew that Jesus was not guilty. He knew that Jesus was not worthy of crucifixion. He knew what the crowd and the leaders were trying to do. But he didn't want to get his hands dirty. And to, to void himself of responsibility in Jesus' death, to cleanse himself of his shame and guilt, he walks to a basin, he washes his hands with water, And he says, it's on you, it's not on me. But nothing can wash away the guilt that Pilate had. Nothing can wash him clean except for the very blood of the person standing directly in front of him, the one he's sending to a cross. And nothing can wash us clean either. Nothing can take away our guilt. Nothing can remove our shame except for the blood of Jesus Christ. That It was shed for us for you and me, the person who took our place on the cross, the blood of Jesus Christ, that's the only thing that can make us clean. And so my encouragement to you today, if you have not made a decision about what to do with Jesus Christ, about whether or not He is truth, about whether or not He is the Son of God, my encouragement to you is do not delay, do not play it neutral, do not sit on the fence, make a choice and find life and forgiveness and hope and grace forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus. We thank you for your Word that reveals to us that he is the truth, that he is the way, that he is the life. And we know that no one comes to the Father except through him. Lord, we thank you for his selfless and sacrificial life. That he chose the way of weakness in the world's eyes. That he chose the way of service, of sacrifice. Lord, I pray for each person here that they would settle in their hearts and their minds where they stand in regard to you, where they stand in regard to Pilate's question. What then will I do with Jesus Christ? I pray that we would put our trust in you and you alone that we would believe and confess and know that there is nothing else in this world that can cleanse us from our sin except for this precious blood of Jesus Christ shed for us. We thank you, Lord. We offer ourselves to you. Help us, Lord, to live our lives as you lived yours. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.